Hey everybody, welcome to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast. My name is Ryan McGee and I'm coming to you from Richmond, Virginia and joining me as always from Southampton, England, our professor of Peel, Dr. Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, how are you today? Very, very sad, Ryan. Why is that? Because we lost the beer bet with Game of Stones. <laughs> we did. And now I have to drink an Ashfield original bitter. I bought a four pack uh, for a pound. That's and what four is, beers for a pound. And what is, what is that in real money? A dollar thirty. <laughs> All right, I'm going to open it now. I have the simpler times Pilsner from Trader Joe's, which was like three fifty for a six pack here in the U.S. Which, uh, if you go to, uh, if you go to our Twitter, which is just Curling Podcast, you can see me drinking it live uh, from last night. Uh, but yeah, so uh, we're gonna settle up with uh, with the Game of Stones guys since they are better at picking the European Championships uh, than we are. So uh, cheers, Jonathan. Cheers. And I, I want to note, I'm having this at room temperature because it's a bitter. So you're supposed to drink that warm. So well, this see is how a, this goes. This is a Pilsner, <laughs> so it doesn't matter. Yeah. All right. Cool. Cheers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like yours is a lot worse than mine. Mine, they could have done a lot worse. <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> anyway. Like subtle notes, subtle notes of hibiscus with uh, with that beer, Jonathan. Uh, there's no no hibiscus. No, <laughs> it's it's actually quite a watery for which for a bitter is very bad and doesn't it doesn't have much taste. Just tastes brown, I would say. It tastes brown. That's beautiful. Mm. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, in addition to uh, horrible beer, we do have uh, actually a really awesome guest today. Uh, we are joined today by Bobby Torres. He is with the Penn State Curling Club in State College, Pennsylvania, uh, and he, as a part of um, as a part of one of his classes there at Penn State, uh, produced a really interesting survey on the growth of curling, and uh, he's here to uh, to talk about it. Talk about it uh, here with us today, uh, Bobby. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I guess just tell us. Um, obviously, you're a you're a student at Penn State, so you're you're fairly young. Uh, how how new are you to curling, and how did how did you get into the sport? Um, so I'm a senior here at Penn state. I actually got into curling. Amazingly enough, I started in my sophomore year here when I started the club here. Um, so I'm only about two years into curling. Um, feels like a lot longer based on what we've done here at Penn state, but, um, just like everybody else here in our club, we're all very, very new to the sport. And that's kind of what's exciting is because, uh, we, we bring a different perspective to the sport in a lot of ways. Um, how did you guys uh, get the club going there at Penn State? I imagine it's at uh, one of the nice rinks that the Pagulas built for you. <laughs> yes. Um, as much as we'd love it to be on the varsity rink upstairs, um, we are in the um, community rink um, in the downstairs part of our ice arena. Um, we started in back in March of, I guess it was 2018. Um, that would be, it was right. It was around Olympic time. Um, it was kind of part of that, you know, Olympic fever coming around. 
we started, um, we were basically a paper club um, up until last fall. Um, we put out a survey, we put out not a survey, but a um, basically a request for, hey, who wants to join a curling club here at Penn State? Expecting a few people to jump on, it's, you know, something new to do. We ended up racking up almost 100 members right away. Um, very few had curling experience, a few very, very experienced curlers was quite the, quite the range. Um, last fall, we were lucky enough to, um, receive some help from basically Penn, long-term Penn State community members, um, up near, um, Cape Cod. Um, they were very generous enough to drive us down stones to borrow for a few weeks. Um, with that, we ran a few learn to curls. Um, we raised money off of those learn to curls. Um, and last spring we started our, uh, first leagues. Um, now we're sitting with a travel program. We're about to launch basically a variant of a high performance program here and um our leagues are approaching well over 100 members so it's it's gone crazy fast that's incredible is that all penn state students or is that students and the community so our club on um, the coin club penn state is all penn state students um however last spring um i kind of came up with the idea that we needed to you know find a way to use our equipment more wisely especially over the summer um, because obviously we're not there to be using it. Um, so I kind of looked in the community for people who would be willing to, and we actually just launched the Nittany Valley Curling Club, um, which is basically our sister community club, um, which caters to um, the state college community members. So they have opportunities to curl. Um, and luckily they are already successful and they'll be running their second season soon. So when you, when you guys were getting your start, I mean, were you basically just learning on the fly? Did you have anyone who had experience starting a curling club helping you guys out or was it kind of just this group of Penn State students figuring it out as you went along um, a very very strong mix of both um, I was lucky enough that we found um, one or two very experienced curlers here and um, students here at Penn State that are now um, out in the circuits themselves um, who helped us from the curling end um, however the organizational stuff and all that we did reach out to several um, members of the curling community was with the Grand National Curling Club or USA Curling. Um, everybody there was super helpful to us. But in the end of the day, it kind of was, we'll call it trial and error because um, unfortunately at our start, Penn State didn't really give us any funding or anything to help us out. So we kind of had to uh, learn learn by trial by fire. And uh, thankfully, we think a lot of the decisions that we made up front um, although they were kind of different than how some more um, more established curling clubs might have worked, um, they've actually worked much better for us in the long run. And now we're continuously growing. We've seen extreme growth, and we're already expecting this spring to um, sell out our leagues once again. And are you guys involved with uh, College Curling USA uh, yet? Um, yes. So we actually just started um, last month with our travel program. Oh, wow. Um, it's it's been a little rough at first because we are of currently of our about a hundred um, active curlers. Um, we actually have zero curlers that curled before Penn State, so we don't have an established um, experienced group that could really lead us there. In addition, we always curl on arena ice, which, as you know, um, transferring that mm -hmm. to showing up at a um, spiel with guys pr practicing on um, dedicated ice every week is a huge huge difference. Um, but we are going to be sending to almost 10 events this year. Um, and we are actually about to launch a program to help train, train our members to be a lot better and to win events and hopefully kind of be a model for 
um, the growth of college curling and hopefully, you know, NCAA curling in the future. Well, I can tell you, I was there when Jonathan helped start the University of Oklahoma uh, curling club, and it was the same deal. They were on hockey ice. No one who had curled before curling in in, Norm, in uh, Oklahoma City before, and uh, that team, you know, grew very quickly and was able to qualify for nationals very quickly. Um, obviously, you know, competing against the the better teams in college curling uh, USA is a little bit of a challenge for them, but they were able to get very very good very quickly, and I, I imagine you guys can do the same. Yeah, it's definitely one of our struggles is that since we have so many members that want to travel, um, getting people, you know, reps, getting them used to these competitions is a huge factor into having them be successful. So one of our issues now is that, you know, we we actually have to cut down on the amount of people that travel because unfortunately, if we let every member travel once, you know, we're never going to build up experience on single teams or with single skips. Um, so it's, it's an ongoing process. And I could say the Oklahoma club, um, did shut us out at, um, Broomstones a few weeks ago. So, oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, they, if, if, if Jeff is still the skip, he's pretty good. They, 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 they were pretty darn good. We, uh, we finally got our bearings towards the end of that, um, that spiel, but it happened that the last game that both Penn state teams played was against each other. So that didn't, it didn't really, uh, help out us see where we were at developing throughout the spiel. So hopefully in the next few weeks and our next few spiels and head to heads, we're going to see some better success and uh, our training program that we're launching actually tomorrow will uh, be starting to pay off. Oh, cool. So what are you doing in your training program? Did you have a coach or is it just weekly practice sessions? So one of our issues is that with our limited ice time and our large leagues, our ice time is basically devoted to just leagues um so what we've done is we've kind of reorchestrated how our league system works to allow for more practice ice time available each week mm-hmm. um and we're allowing a select i think we're uh, we're trying to figure out between 16 and 32 um members of this training program where they'll we've been working with campus recreation also to have weekly dedicated practice time in addition to actual physical training and uh, conditioning with a campus recreation coach um to really simulate a you know, true varsity sport and hopefully kind of give us a leg up in the future and hopefully um, bring home a national title in the next few years. How much support are you getting from the rink and, and how, how, how would you rate uh, the ice compared to, compared to other arena clubs? (laughs) Um, So the rink is super supportive of us. Um, They're actually, we're hoping to knock on wood, put um, houses in the ice um, this spring which would be awesome. Fortunately, I'm going to graduate, but you know, I'll have to get over that. Um, but they're super supportive on that end. Um, unfortunately, our ice time is not great, but in a Division One NCAA arena with televised sports each week, it's kind of tough. Um, from that, so from that end, they are very supportive, but there's always so much we can get um, from the rink themselves. Um, as for the ice, it is very. It's for arena clubs. Uh, I've traveled to a few arena clubs to you know network with them, find out what they do. I'll say our ice is far better than what most arena clubs are dealing with. You guys should put in to host, uh, to host arena nationals. I know Notre Dame, Notre Dame did the same thing. Uh, and they hosted, I think it was two years ago. Cause they, they was kind of the same deal with them. They, you know, they, 
donors gave them a very, very nice facility, uh, and they needed something to put in it in the summertime, which uh, Arena Nationals uh, fit that. So they they bid and and won. So they they hosted a couple of years ago. Um, so you had a bunch of a bunch of Arena curlers going to South Bend, which I don't think going to State College is necessarily any more out of the way than than South Bend is. Yeah, I've actually I'm, I've actually traveled with our um, hockey team to South Bend. I've seen their seen their um, their houses in the ice downstairs, which pained me a little bit. But um, we've we've discussed with the arena hosting something in the future, and they're very open to it. Um, again, unfortunately, our our arena is probably one of the most jam packed schedules you'll ever find in an arena, just because it's a huge. Obviously, State College likes their sports to a point, um, so. The amount of leagues they have, both um, youth, adult hockey leagues, student hockey leagues. Um, there's blackout periods now with the um, Big Ten and the NCAA where when we have hockey games in the rink, they has to shut down for X amount of hours on either end for safety reasons. Hmm. Um, so hopefully in the next few years, we're going to work something out with them. And hopefully um, we're actually going to be hosting a big exhibition game this um, spring for just us, um, kind of making some adjustments to how we play the game make it really exciting for the fans and all that and so hopefully in the next few years we're talking about doing on the varsity side you know seeing seeing what we can do seeing how big we can make it and seeing how much fun we could have in that rink so i got i got a question does so there's a shot on twitter uh that went kind of vi- well, it went curling viral i'll say someone someone made a game winning winning shot which it may look easy for club ice but having thrown on arena ice there's no such thing as an easy shot in arena ice so uh, I'm wondering, were you involved in that, or do you know you know the story behind it? Um, so I was involved. Unfortunately, I was the other skip. Oh, no, <laughs> um, that was actually our vice president was the other skip, and it was our basically our divisional championship. It had been a amazingly back and forth game the entire time. Um, we had a really really good crowd, and I don't know. I'm, I know some of the shots kind of show, some of them don't. We had a lot of kids in the stands uh, making a lot of noise. So it was it was really fun. Um, the, the end before it, I hit basically a very similar miracle shot the other direction to keep us alive. Yeah. <laughs> and then we thought the game was over because we thought there was not enough curl on the ice. That last few feet, the fact that that stone curled like two feet over, I still don't get how that happened. Um, but it was a beautiful shot. We gave them so much credit for that. And that was, we've we've deemed it as our, uh, remember back in, um, they used to have against double A football games, which, you know, hopefully come back. But um, the term, you know, you've completed an instant classic immediately yeah. after that game. It was <laughs> the point. Yeah. Was, the point system. <laughs> yeah. It, it was an instant classic for Penn state curling and probably will be for a very long time. It was fun seeing the students in the stands too. I know OU, uh, they had a lot of their friends would make the trip because it's about from where OU is to where the curling rink is. It was about 40 minute drive and they had a bunch of their friends would make the 40 minute drive, just to sit there in a very cold uh, hockey rink and watch their friends play on really bad curling ice. So that's, <laughs> that was good to see too. Yeah. And that, that actually, that match took place a little before midnight on a Sunday night. <laughs> so wow. the, um, we had a great turnout. There was also, we ran a fundraiser for, um, we have our little student section that has developed this mess. They call themselves the stone zone. Um, they ran a big fundraiser for, um, one of their friends had just been diagnosed with, um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and, um, mm-hmm. they raised almost a thousand dollars through that match, which was really cool. So oh, wow. a, lot, a lot of really cool That's things awesome. happened around that. So I, I guess give us a background and we will, we'll link to it, um, on 
everything we have so people can see what we're talking about. But you, you know, it was kind of a research project. Can you give us the background on on the survey and, and how it came about? Um, sure. So basically, um, I'm primarily a business student at Penn State. Um, we have to take a um, class where it basically has to do with um, research, presenting research, finding a solution to a problem. Um, my group didn't really have many ideas. I was like, listen, like I'm obviously very involved with curling here. Um, I've started two clubs here now, hopefully going to start a third in the near future. I, I think this would be really cool to do. Um, we kind of went with it. At first, we didn't know what type of reaction we'd get from the community. Um, that being said, it is the curling community, so yeah. they're extremely helpful, and we've found that out even more in this than anything. Um, we put that survey out to a few Facebook pages, sent it to a few um, club presidents that I had talked to in the past, and within days, we had hundreds of responses, um, not enough time in the day to get through every single one of them at first, um, but it exploded. Um, we submitted the project for our class back in, I guess it was April, the end of last semester, um, at that point, I kind of told everybody, I'll get out the results in a better formatted curling uh, for curling, because obviously the curling community doesn't want to have the uh, Penn State English 202D class uh, um, stuff on the in the project. <laughs> so after I finished my uh, internship over the summer and I had actual free time in my hands, I uh, reformatted everything, got it out, and hopefully, um, hopefully it's been helpful to some people. It's definitely been helpful to us. Um, so it's really cool that it worked out this way. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I went through it and it, you know, it talked about a lot of things that we've talked about before here on the pro here on this podcast and put some numbers, uh, along with it. Um, you know, who did, who all did you guys reach out? Like basically what were the, what was the response back? Like who, you know, you have, you have a mix of Canadian and U S and even, uh, 1.1% it says was from, uh, listed as other country, but, uh, it looks like you got 284 responses, uh, 61%, uh, from here in the U S 37% from Canada. And then just a handful, uh, from, from elsewhere. How, I mean, were you expecting to get, uh, as many responses as you did, especially from Canada? Uh, not at all. Um, that so the 284 that we list actually there was more. Um, mm. I think it was a little over 300. Um, fortunately, just due to data data issues, we had to throw some out as as would be expected with something of this scale. Um, it, the responses we wanted to put together a figure of how many clubs they came from, which quickly turned impossible because people you know, a lot of clubs have similar names. People misspell on their phones and doing these surveys, so we expect it was around 150 clubs we heard from. Okay. Um, that was our estimate. We tried to put together a map, but then after three hours of that, we uh, kind of gave up. Um, <laughs> um, but we had no idea it would be from this this many people, um, this quality of data. And it's kind of tough to explain with um, this presentation, but those last few slides I have in there of just qualitative data, we had put some qualitative questions in there thinking that a few people would answer them. That was a mistake. Um, we probably had... If you put it on standard book paper, you'd probably have about a hundred pages of qualitative responses Holy cow. Uh, to go through. The quantitative data was very easy to go through. Obviously, just throw it in Excel. Um, luckily, my background I'm pretty quick with Excel and all that, so that's very easy stuff to go through. But the the paragraph on paragraph on paragraphs of ranting and suggestions, and <laughs> it, it definitely took quite a while to digest. Uh, curlers are very passionate about curling, <laughs> uh, as we as we have we have found out just doing this podcast for the last year and a half. Um, oh, oh, yes. Would, 
was there something in particular that you were looking for? And is that what in, you know, did you, did you get the results that you did, you think you were, that you thought you were going to get going into it? Um, so I try to be pretty open-minded going into it. Just cause I didn't want to, you know, have any bias into the questions or anything like that. Mm-hmm. One thing I kind of expected and we did see was the struggle between, you know, the traditions of the game, um, you know, the traditions of, you know, the country club style clubs that exist versus what people want to see grow, you know, with modern sports life. Um, we compared a lot and I have a big background in golf and I've worked with PGA and things like that. And I had a big comparison to that where I've worked with clubs that had to, you know, evolve, um, to a much more modern, uh, member base, um, a younger member base. And we did see a lot of that pop up and that it was really cool. And we've, we're actually using that in our club. Um, we're actually making some, edits to how we're having some exhibition games next semester and kind of seeing how it works and seeing how the curling world reacts and, you know, seeing how we could actually change the sport to make it more fun for everybody and help grow it faster and make it a, you know, stronger business. So there were a few things that kind of, that I, that I found very interesting. And the, the first one, which is very early on in the PowerPoint that we'll of course link to, um, was there was a, big difference between how much people in the United States thought that a learn to curl should cost versus how much people in Canada thought a learn to curl should cost. Even if you, um, you know, even if you take into account Canadians who maybe thought that it was, that it was in Canadian dollars instead of us dollars. Yeah. Um, so that was actually mis- after, after we sent out, I kind of realized, oh no, like this, we had too many people respond from Canada. I should have fixed that. But um, one thing that popped up to us after the fact was that um, Canadian clubs versus uh, American clubs do sometimes have a different idea of what a learn to curl is. Um, American clubs, typically it's your, you know, one to two hour open house style learn to curl. Mm-hmm. You know, I've heard, I've heard the term chuck a rock thrown around a few times. Um, <laughs> get your, get your picture for Instagram type thing. Um, versus in Canada, there's a lot of learn to curl longer programs where you might have a few days part of the learn to curl. So I think that hmm. does skew it a little bit. Um, however, I think overall it kind of reflects in the United States, people starting it, it's more of a novelty versus in Canada, you starting it, it's more of a, you know, tradition, more traditional activity to be um, being a part of. So there's definitely, it kind of shows the how the sport is differently perceived in both countries. So in your opinion, uh, you know, we're, we're getting into opinion versus just the, the numbers on, on paper. Uh, in your opinion, like, is there a right way or a wrong way? Um, should the U.S. go to a model where you're getting people to commit to, you know, a few days worth of classes where you're really getting immersed into curling? Or is a point where, you know, maybe the Canadians need to look at a model where you're getting people to come in and just get that a, a two hour taste of curling that maybe they, maybe they get hooked and then join, you know, a beginner league or something like that. So with between this and our experience here at Penn state, um, I'm a fan of the, you know, short open house style just because as also shown through this, one of the big issues is time commitment, especially with younger people um, with the millennial generation where, you know, a long time commitment, a few days is kind of rough on people. Um, so, you know, one night for two hours, you know, that's, you know, it's easy to do. It's simple. Um, in addition, and we did ask in this survey as well, like, what is your retention from learn to curls? Um, and that those numbers actually came out a little lower than we expected. 
because at least in our experiences here, we have approached around 90% retention. Wow, that's really good. I'd say Oklahoma is lower than what's said here. I'd say if we got 15 to 20% out of a learned across, we were pretty happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's a lot. It's, you know, around that type of um, range. I think um, for us, it's just we've really focused on that quick, have fun type night. Um, As you said, like, you know, get that taste, get that hook. Um, versus other programs, you know, they spend a lot more time in Learn to Curl getting into the nitty gritty. We focused on just getting out, getting, as we call it, we call it the Tucker Rock too. We call it the Instapick, um, Instapick night, especially for college kids. And we've had extreme retention from those nights. Even the kids that come out not expecting to come back, they end up, you know, showing up to us as we're cleaning up and say, hey, who do I pay my league fees to? So it's... It's definitely an issue of models, and it's also an issue of your demographic you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with the older demographics, you might be better off with a longer structure versus with us, we have you know 18 to 22-year-olds where they want to just do it for a few hours. That's how they're going to make their decision. They're not going to want to sign up for a you know three-week, you know two nights a week type program. That was one of the things we actually added to our Learn to Curls last year was basically an Instagram wall. We got a, you know, we got a, we got a, a background that people could pose in front of. And it was, we worked it into the Learn to Curl was, you know, these are basically your stations. And then your last station is the Instagram wall. Um, that way, the people who just want to get their photos so that they can show off to all their friends that they went and tried curling, that they're not in the way of the people who are actually trying to learn to curl. So that we would set, we would tell them there's going to be time at the end to get your picture taken. And uh, that actually helped make things a lot smoother when we were running our learn to curls. So what, what's yeah. in the Instagram wall? Is it like some stones and a broom and it's like a station specifically or? Oh, no, it was a backdrop with our logo and website pasted all over it. Oh, wow. <laughs> I can tell you yeah, work in marketing. <laughs> That's exactly right, Jonathan. <laughs> we actually tell our guys during our, you know, typical safety spiel before we send people out. Like, you know, we give your typical, you know, try not to, you know, obviously try not to fall. If you do avoid hitting your head, you know, your typical, uh, your typical discussion, but we always add in at the end, um, but make sure your first time throwing a rock, um, your friend is taking a video because if you do fall, please make sure it is post all of the internet. <laughs> and that has helped a lot. Yeah. It, it's in, you can probably give us some insight into that. You know, I, I think a lot of it looked like a lot of the survey responses you got wa- uh, came from people saying, you know, we need to market to the younger demographic. Um, it, it seems like in some, and, and it's not the case all over because in you know the arena clubs in the U.S. I think skew a lot younger because you know you're having to start from scratch, whereas places clubs that are you know in established curling markets. I'd imagine the average age in those clubs are a lot older. And it looks like the responses you got were, you know, we got to, we got to reach the younger demographic because, you know, we're losing curlers at the tail end. We're not adding younger curlers who are going to be club members for, you know, 20, 20, 30 years. So I guess the question is, how do you market curling to, uh, to your, um, age group? Because I'm in, uh, you're about you're about 14 uh, years younger than I am, and I'm in a very interesting point of my career in marketing. When I first got in, everyone was asking, "How do we uh, how do we market to your uh, demographic? How do we market to your generation?" Well, no one asks me that anymore because we aren't the new generation um, into the marketplace. 
and my generation doesn't have enough money to be able to afford the high-end stuff either. So no one really cares what I think anymore. We're asking your generation, how do we reach you? How do we market curling to you? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's we've found successful and we've found other college programs successful. And obviously the college programs, um, you know, the generation college right now is the next generation that needs to be touched. And obviously, as much as social media seems to be the cliche of it all, it is huge to us. Um, we do spend some money on Facebook ads and things like that. Um, we've found things like, you know, flyers. We've, we've seen other clubs will post like flyers like around their towns about, you know, upcoming land to curl, maybe put like signs out. People, unfortunately, especially in our generation, don't really react to that very often. Um, or in that, in other cases, we've seen clubs suggest, oh, we, you know, buy a TV spot for our, you know, upcoming open house in Olympic year which sounds great. Um, but unfortunately, as many, many of us can attest, we don't watch television anymore unless mm-hmm. it's, you know, the um, sports going on. Um, so that's kind of why social media is so important to us. In addition to that, it's doing things like, as you say, like the Instagram, like that stuff is huge because almost every single person that comes out to their first learn to crawl is going to post a picture on Instagram. They're going to post something on Snapchat. Um, so we're actually developing a snap filter for our next semester's learn to curls, um, with all information, how to join, um, we're putting in some sort of Instagram, um, very similar to what you were talking about, but really kind of encouraging people to post with our hashtag, with our tags to get people driven over. And then on top of that, and it comes down to what will help marketing for the sport overall is just, you know, exposure. And as, again, as cliche as it is, we've found small arena clubs like us popping up. Um, it's huge because now I'd, I'd say we've grown to a point and some of our stuff has gotten viral in our community and people know about us that almost everybody in state college knows curling is here. And that is that alone is huge where some more developed clubs will be a lot quieter. They're much more to themselves. You know, they have their established members and they don't really want to let in, you know, a lot of new members um, versus we're very out we're very out there. We get as many shirts on people as we possibly can. We sell as many hats on people as we possibly can um, and make it fun. And that's how it's exploded so well here in State College. I know part of your results, uh, Canadians were less satisfied with the growth of the sport than Americans were in, in their country. Do you even like within the US, do you even have it Obviously, it's not in your report, but you have it broken down by, you know, traditional curling state versus non-traditional curling state, whether, um, you know, curlers in places like Massachusetts, Minnesota, Wisconsin, if they're less satisfied with the growth of the sport than places like, you know, California, um, California, North Carolina, uh, the the up and coming states in terms of curling. So what we did, so we didn't quantify this, um, but in our qualitative data, we did kind of take a peek at people that said that, you know, I have a 20 year experience in curling uh, versus people that said, you know, I just did learn to curl last year. Um, And that kind of was a really good, um, really good proxy for that type of idea of, you know, the more established curling communities. And we found that surprisingly, the older, more established curlers all seem to share some of the same ideas and same concerns. Um, we had club presidents writing on our um, qualitative data how, you know, I'm in an established club, but I feel for new members, we're not very welcoming. We're not very, we're not really pushing for new members partially because we don't, as much as we want, you know, increased numbers, you know, make it more economical for everybody. You know, we have our, you know, social club. We don't really want to allow many new people into it. Um, and 
these are the people that you'd expect to be pushing that idea are actually the ones that are concerned about it. And the younger guys say the same things. Um, a lot of them, you know, wrote, you know, when I joined my club, I felt kind of, you know, an outsider. I felt kind of, you know, they push for new members, but once I got there, you know, they did it, you know, it came down to, you know, broomstacking, like it's, to put it, I mean, it's not exactly like it, but some of the responses sounded kind of like, you know, your old high school lunchroom type <laughs> idea where you have your established groups and everything and the new guys are there, but, you know, it's tough to break in. And as much as that's a social norm and, you know, you should expect that, um, it definitely seemed to be a big theme. And it's very similar to the golf world where you kind of had that same thing and clubs have had to kind of evolve to be much more inclusive to new members to help grow them in the long run. Yeah, I'd say that's pretty universal. Having having moved around a lot, it it normally takes me about three years to to get integrated into a new curling club, and I've been curling uh, most of my life. So, and I you know I know the game, um, you know I know the traditions and all of that. But if you're just a new person, often the the curling club's got a pretty dense kind of clique going on, and it's not really like not wanting new people or not wanting someone who's an outsider. It's more just that people are kind of, you know, people, there's a lot of clubs, people play on the same team for 20 years, right? It's yeah, like their absolutely. Tuesday night men's team and they're there to hang with their Tuesday night men's team. They've been together for 20 years and it's not like they don't want new people, but it's, you know, there's just not space to bring another person in. So it's really tough to sometimes break those cliques up. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, I said, it's a very natural, you know, human tendency and, you know, these are clubs that, you know, some people have been curling for 50 years, the same club. So obviously when a 17 year old kid shows up at the club, um, they're not likely to invite them to be their lead in their first day. Um, yeah. But it's definitely something that it can be where it's, I think if people are aware of it, um, it'll be, you know, just being aware of the issue is a huge improvement. Um, we also kind of saw another thing I hyped on within the results was the um, adherence to, to traditional norms of the sport itself. And that's something that, as I said, like that was one of those things that we kind of expected to see. Um, we were a little surprised at how mon- how many people kind of brought it up. Um, it's something that we're kind of experimenting with in our club. Um, and it's, you know, changing certain rules, changing how etiquette of the game works within our club and seeing how that, you know, makes people more excited to be here. And so far, the changes we've made um, have been extremely helpful. And um, we're expecting to run a large match in the future where we're kind of making some edits to the game to make it more spectator friendly, um, make it much more fun for the participants um, to be in a, you know, that type of environment, which is different than a typical traditional curling environment. And, you know, seeing, seeing how those work. So maybe they're not, you know, maybe it's not, you know, good ideas for all styles curling clubs, but for some younger clubs, you know, it makes it fun. It makes it, you know, youthful and it gets people excited. So. So, so what are some of the traditions that uh, you think have these negative attributes for the club? Um, it's not even negative attributes per se. Um, it's just um, a lot of it comes down to uh, people, you know, ex- embracing the game um, at, at the game. So, for example, recently we've actually been encouraging our student, quote unquote student section um, to pick a team, and they have, and treat it almost like a football game which sounds kind of weird out of context. Um, but what they ended up doing is, you know, they'll be loud. They'll make just like during a, you know, college football game, they'll make noise while the other team is not on offense. They'll do the same thing for us. And as much as it sounds crazy, it's like, Oh no, you can't like, you know, 
you can't hear, you can't, it, it's worked. And what we've found is the other teams very quickly, you know, figure out, all right, well, whoever throws, you know, you have to be following up and you need to be very vocal and very good communication. The crowd gets really into it. We, I've found, cause I was, unfortunately I was on the receiving end of it, especially for that game, actually that went viral a little bit. Um, and it makes it so fun for participants. And we had a blast cause you know, you funnel that energy. Um, and I'll say when I threw my miracle shot, shutting up, you know, hundreds of kids screaming and screaming my ear was very entertaining. <laughs> um, things like that, things like the game clock, which is something that we're going to be experimenting a little more next semester. Obviously there's been a lot of, you know, issues with that in the past in the professional curling world of, you know, how do we change the game clock? How do we, you know, how do we make it so it speeds up the game without ruining the game and ruining the, you know, the strategy and allowing players that type of strategy um, time. And one of the things we're looking at is kind of a little more out of the box idea is making the game clock end by end um, and allowing more timeouts, obviously, but kind of forcing it to speed up forcing decisions to be made faster, but at the same time, allowing the crowd that's in our arena to have an impact on the game, just like football, where you have a play clock, um, you know, kind of merging some of those ideas while allowing the strategy of the game to remain constant, allowing the crowd to get into it. You know, we have, hopefully we'll have several hundred to almost a thousand students at that match. And, you know, there could be kids that want to come join curling. Wow. After. So that's, that's how we, how we grow our club and hopefully how we grow the sport. Yeah, it's pretty funny because even at the highest levels, there's there's debates about whether or not uh, fans should be booing or cheering at Worlds and at uh, you know slams and events like that. So it's it's kind of interesting that you're actively encouraging that behavior with the crowds at your events. Yeah, and it's definitely and that's that was one of the things that we had asked some of our you know more experienced curling um, community members of you know how would you react to this if you know you're in a match or your favorite, you know, Team USA is in a world match and the crowd is making noise like you're on offense on, you know, fourth and fourth and one at the line. And at a lot of people were like, that's weird. Like, you know, it's not in the, it's not in the game name of the sport. But after we kind of talked to them a little more, like, all right, you know, that's, it's interesting. It's not, not that it might work or might not work, but it's, it's worth experimenting with. And that's kind of what we see our role here at Penn State is, you know, we're a very, youthful and very um, developing organization. So we can make the, we could, you know, experiment with these things. Um, we're actually going to be having a few large home matches against some rival schools this spring. Hopefully we can experiment with them, see how they work and, you know, see how the curling community reacts to them. And we, you know, we don't know yet. And it's, it's exciting because that to us, that's really cool because we can kind of be the, you know, springboard to see how these things work. It's kind of like, you know, triple a baseball making, you know, edits to the rules yeah. before they go to the majors. And this is the place to do it. Yeah, it's funny. So when I was starting, we start when we were starting the Oklahoma Curling Club. Um, teaching the etiquette was kind of tricky, and I, I remember one night. Do you remember the broom stackers, Ryan? Uh, yes. I, I is that? <laughs> I think that's the team I beat for the first club championship. <laughs> they were kind of characters. They showed up in like uh, Norwegian, the Norwegian kind of pants and all that. Oh, no, uh, that was a different team. But yeah, I do remember. Was that a different them. team. So they would they would do. I was playing them. It was like their second or third game, and I had a shot for the game. And they started like waving from the other end, trying to distract me, like you would for a free throw. And I had to go down and explain after the shot that you don't do that. And they were like, "Are you just saying that because you missed?" They were just like, but they didn't believe that that was the actual etiquette of the game because they came from 
a football, you know, basketball world where you, you know, you are supposed to distract the other player, whereas in curling, it's really frowned on. So that's interesting yeah. that you're actually encouraging a little bit of that. Yeah. And it's definitely seeing how everybody reacts. It's going to be huge. Um, we've actually, I mean, etiquette wise, we, we know very well the um, issues of etiquette of uh, us sending travel teams out that have never played in dedicated ice, never been in a real club. It's been a, we, we have to keep having these education sessions with people before we send them out. Like, listen, we, we allow this at our club. Do not do that at that club. <laughs> We're not letting you travel again. Um, so it's, it's a push and pull. Um, it, it's going to be interesting to see how it works. And hopefully our, our goal is that if it works out, we can start to host bigger matches here at Penn state. And if, if that, that type of idea is going to work anywhere, um, it might not even be on like, you know, in a world's type, it's not going to work in like maybe the Olympic style of curling. It's, if college curling is to grow and develop actual varsity programs, that type of crowd engagement is what gets people to buy tickets and show up. Um, I've, I've had experience running actually our student section for our hockey team here. And we know very well, people don't come out to watch the game as much as they come out to be a part of the game. They come out to be, you know, have a great time, you know, go tailgate beforehand um, and have a great time. And, you know, if we can get people here to Pagula, you know, tailgating for a curling match, it sounds crazy, but we have enough students that are interested in doing it and, you know, we'll see how it works out and hopefully you'll see things on Facebook and Twitter within the next few months of how that works out. So obviously that works for a club that is mostly made up of younger people. But if you have, if you have a club that is, you know, an an established club in a traditional curling market and you're trying to bring in um, younger people, what are some of the things that they can do that, you know, can, can make thing, you know, can make it an environment where younger people want to be a part of the club and want to continue curling, but still maintain, you know, some of the traditions of the club. How can you make things more welcoming for, for the younger generation? Is it as simple as say, you know, being more willing to give preferential ice time to some of the younger curlers? I think that's one of the, that's some of the feedback we got. We did a big show about, the state of curling in Saskatchewan and one of some of the feedback we got is, well, one of the reasons they're dying that curling is dying in Saskatchewan is they refuse to give, um, they, they, they only give the worst ice time to the, the new curlers. Is it just as simple as that? Or there's some other things that, that can be done to, to make the younger, make the younger crowd more, feel more welcome at a traditional curling club. Absolutely. That, that was actually one of the things that popped up in our data. Um, also was the, you know, getting the worst ice time for like, you know, the learn to curl leagues or the beginner developmental leagues. Um, another thing that kind of popped up was how much it costs, obviously. And that's, and that's anything anywhere is going to be cost is an issue. But one of the things that we kind of theorized and that we've developed at our club is, you know, traditionally you have obviously your teams of four um, and a lot of leagues at these clubs you have, you know, you could have alternates, you could have some drop-ins um, that make, you know, allow the league to function. We actually have our team set up with five, um, which it raised a lot of eyebrows at first. Um, but what it allows us to do for especially younger people who have a lot busier schedules in some cases, not all cases, but some cases, um, a lot of our guys are working two jobs outside of being in class. Um, so what it allows us to do is charge less to be a part of our leagues. And then if one member can't show up that night, you know, you could adjust your roster and you're fine and your team stay consistent. Um, things like that are huge versus, um, you know, traditionally you have your, you know, league, your club league matches, you know, your Tuesday nights, you know, eight ends, teams of four. 
um, and having strict strict rules and having strict um, number of allowances and having to be more expensive just to cover the ice time, cover the you know club club um, expenses, you know that can play a factor. It's not to say every club should you know look at options like that, but it's that willingness to kind of look outside the box and looking at how you know, how could we make some small changes like that? Like having five people officially on a team, you know, having basically having an alternate um, or even we allow player, we allow teams to play with five members. Sometimes um, we, you know, we have a set rotation that we force them to follow um, when they do so. Um, it, you know, it's these little things that a lot of people raise a lot of eyebrows. I think we actually, those videos that went viral, we saw a few people comment like, why is there five people on the ice with purple on? Um, and the reason is, well, we were able to cut down our costs for the league members by 20% because we allowed five members. And when our members have an extra work shift that night or something pops up and they can't be there, you know, they don't feel pressured to be at every single match, but their elite, their team is fully paid off. The league is solvent and everybody's having a good time. So, so do you allow people to rotate in during the game if, this, if all five show up or... So what we do is we have obviously one person sits on each um, on each throw. We actually in some of our leagues we actually only pay six six um, stone ends just because of stone limitations and the amount of people we have. Um, we basically force you know the skip throws the last two stones. Everybody else throws one stone. Okay. And after you throw a stone, you sit out the next throw. Yeah. Um, so it it's kind of strange in some respects, and again, like it'll it'll raise a lot of eyebrows with traditional curlers but for our cases young curlers they don't care they're sitting at one throw you know they're they're still having a great time if anything you know if they're new to the game they're you know little winded after their last uh, sweep when their team member barely threw the stone um hard enough to pass the hog line so it you know it allows them to have a good time pay less um and be there and be a part of it I know we're running low on time here. I guess what would be what was the biggest takeaway that you had from 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 the survey you did? Well, besides for the fact that curlers are very um, generous with their time writing um, qualitative responses, um, the biggest thing that popped up for us was that it's everybody in the game wanted to grow more. Everybody understands there is room to grow, and everybody understands there you know is things that can be changed, and it seems to be everybody understands certain things should be changed, whether it be adding more programs for, you know, watching kids during, you know, club matches, whether it be having better ice time for beginners, as you kind of talked about. Um, and it seems a lot of people kind of raise the question of people know these things that need to happen, but a lot of club leadership doesn't necessarily want to do them. It's not on the top of their priority list. Um, so to me, that was kind of the most striking and the most important is that, you know, it's not that these things can't be done. It's not that the sport can't be grown with even minor tweaks, just like changing ice time. It's that, you know, somebody has to be willing to, you know, step up, say, you know, let's do this. Um, and, you know, kind of risk their skin on the results of how it works out for the club. And, um, you know, that's a problem in every single industry and in every single sport and every single thing you'll ever do. Um, and it's definitely alive and well in curling. And, you know, hopefully some little things that can be changed are changed and, you know, these clubs can grow bigger, better, faster, start spawning off new clubs, building more dedicated ice and uh, make the sport, you know, just as well known in the United States as it is in Canada and around the world. 
So I guess what's uh, what's next for you and what's next for the Penn State club? Are you going to try to keep curling even after you leave Penn State? Um, so I'm actually moving to Manhattan in June. Um, and Manhattan, unfortunately, has a lack of curling clubs. However, I, I do have it in the back of my mind. And I've talked to a few people regarding, um, you know, helping start that in Manhattan. And hopefully, you know, that could be part of my future. Um, as for the uh, Penn State club, we're continually growing and with the advent of, you know, putting houses in the ice, saving on setup time, saving on setup costs with the advent of our high performance, you know, our, you know, quote unquote high performance program, hopefully we can be kind of a uh, spark to help start other college programs. We've already talked to several other colleges that um, kind of get forwarded along to us when they're looking to start programs just because of how new we are and how much we've grown so fast. And hopefully it can be a spark in the, you know, near enough future to have the game grow enough on a college level to develop some sort of actual NCAA structure for, um, for college curling. Where, where can people follow you and where can they follow Penn State Curling? Um, the best place to follow us is on our Facebook page, um, Curling Club at Penn State. Um, it's not Penn State Curling Club because of uh, Penn State naming rules, um, but that's basically where we post everything, whether it be our um, spiels going on, whether it be results in our leagues, whether it be funny videos of people doing funny stuff or uh, great videos of great shots. Um, it's basically the best place. We're also on Twitter under the same name, um, Curling Club Penn State, and Instagram under the same, Curling Club Penn State. Um, that's basically the best way to keep up with us and uh, hopefully see some really cool things coming out in the next few months. All right. Uh, do you have anything else you want to add before before we get out of here? Um, not really. Um, I'd like to, you know, say, um, it, as long as they don't develop program, um, if Ohio state ever develops curling program, we'll be better than that. I'll at least say that <laughs> Mich- Michigan too, right? <laughs> yeah. But you know, we feel bad for them. They've had a rough week. So, uh, <laughs> all right. Is there, is there a website where people can go and see the, see the, uh, the, the results of, of the survey or is it basically going to just be us? putting out the the link um the link is out unfortunately it's kind of post it's part of our club website it was actually posted on but the club website isn't i believe the homepages aren't live unfortunately that is something that our our directors are now working on again um in the next few weeks hopefully our website will be reposted on our facebook page and all that and it'll be a page on there um however until then it is kind of floating around as a wix link on various facebook pages and if you put it out um, it should be live on that Wix pages to be able to be seen uh, by anybody that wants to take a look. All right, we'll make sure we'll make sure everyone has access to that link. Uh, Bobby, thanks so much for your time uh, and for all that you've done for curling. We appreciate you coming on the show, and we appreciate you being such an ardent supporter of the sport. It's good to have you on our side. Yeah, thanks a lot, Bobby. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. You can find all of our previous episodes and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast app, and leave a review. If you enjoyed listening, the greatest compliment we can receive is when you tell a friend about us. That helps us grow and helps us share our love of this great game. If you have a comment or question, or you just want to talk about curling, you can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Rocks Across the Pond. Thank you again, and we will talk to you real soon. <laughs>